Welcome to Water for Fighting, where I discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. I've spent over 20 years working with and getting to know the people who've made water their life's work, and I created this podcast to allow you, the listener, to get to know them as well. Today it's my pleasure to introduce former General Counsel at the Florida Department of Environmental Protection and current Environmental Law Attorney at the Lewis Longman & Walker Law Firm, Fred Ashour. Fred grew up in Long Island, New York, and Port Charlotte here in Florida, where he graduated high school. He went to Edison Community College on a music scholarship. More on that later. Fred's a veteran of the U.S. Army and would eventually graduate with honors from the Florida State University College of Law. Let's join that conversation in progress. You're, you're a bona fide uh, Florida boy now. You've got, for the record, a Florida State Seminoles Correct. shirt on. Um, go Knowles. But you have roots in New York and also... Charlotte County down south. Um, how long have you been in Tallahassee at this point? Oh, um, since 1997. Okay. So I, I, my wife and I have lived in Tallahassee longer than I lived anywhere else. We came here after the Army to, to for me to go to Florida State. Went to Florida State, um, finished my undergrad. I had a two-year degree when I got here from um, Edison Community College, now Edison State College. Um Came up here, studied business, and then went to law school, and then we just stayed. And it's it's a great place to raise children. That is. Uh, and when we when I graduated law school, we had our our first uh, first son, first child, and um, he was like three years old. And it just I got an offer from that firm, and it just mm-hmm. made sense. And you have two grown boys, right? I do. I do. Um, and so they were. So you were here when when you got both of them, correct? Well, um, so you know my family's it's unique. So yes. my oldest is actually adopted. We adopted him yeah. when he was almost 10. That's... So Frederick was, Frederick's two years younger. Mm-hmm. So when we adopted Fred Lee, yes, Frederick, Fred Lee. A lot of Freds. Yep. Fredericks, and we yes. do not make fun of George Foreman in my house. <laughs> um, so when we adopted Fred Lee, he was almost 10. He was nine. Frederick was seven. Mm. Um, he was, Fred Lee lived in Tampa at the time. So, okay. Yep. Tell me about growing up. You, New York, Charlotte County. It's a, it's an old story, uh, folks. You know, coming from somewhere else, you know, living here. But you kind of went a little bit of a back and forth. I did, I did. So, um, yeah, we moved to Charlotte County when I was seven. I was born on Long Island. Uh, I don't, I honestly don't remember much of that. I remember, you know, like living in an apartment, um, doing some fishing with my stepdad on Sundays. Um, you need those fish, did you? I don't know. I don't remember if we did. Exactly. So, um, so we moved to Charlotte County when I was seven. Um, and I lived there till I was 13. Then I, um, a couple of years, a couple of years before that had met my biological father for the first time. So after sort of visiting with him a couple of times back and forth, uh, on a, what was at the time to be just a summer vacation with my Biological father, I went up to New York and about halfway through, called my mom and said, hey, I'd really like <laughs> to stay here. Is that, I mean, not, I mean, the obvious awkwardness of having that conversation with your mom, but 13 years old is a rough age to move from one place to another, especially across the country. So not really. Um, I mean, I, 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 my mother meant the world to me. My mother, my mother's past, my mother meant the world to me, but I was a 13-year-old boy, mm-hmm. and um, and you know me. 
I'm a, I'm, I'm, I can be a bit crazy <laughs> and, uh, you know, sort of rambunctious. And that's my dad. Mm. And that's my dad. Um, and so I saw that, you know, and I saw that personality. And I was 13-year-old boy. My mom had divorced my stepdad for what at that point had been a few years. And so I was, um, I, I guess I was sort of looking for you know, mm -hmm. that in my life. And um, I lived with my dad until I was 16. And then he decided to move to Florida, too. Oh, there you so, go. So we, um, and that that move was, um, it was it was interesting. My dad did not have a lot. And so we packed on everything that we had, he and I, on a Greyhound. And we moved to Florida on a Greyhound. And I think it took us like four days to get to Charlotte County. Oh, my goodness. From, from the, oh, yeah, yeah. And we... We, we spent, we overnighted in like the Washington DC Greyhound. And I remember that. And it's, it was, <laughs> that was not a safe place. But my dad, um, my dad, and I, I think everyone feels this way about their dad. My dad was a Marine. He was, you know, black belt in like Taekwondo or whatever. And I just viewed him as a certified badass. And so yeah. I did, I, I, I recognized it as an unsafe place, but I did not feel unsafe. Sure. Sure. You know? So. Um, you mentioned fishing, and I, may, I was making fun of the river there. Was, we're a podcast about water here and the environment. So, and you mentioned fishing. Was that something that you grew up doing with your dad? It, no, actually, only with my stepdad. Okay. Um, and so, after he um, and my mom divorced, I really didn't fish much after that. And and now I don't have the patience for it. I hear you. I hear you. Um, I'm going to read some names to you, and you tell me what they have in common. Ronnie James Dio, Lemmy Kilmister, Cliff Burton, John Entwistle, Fred Ashour. So um, I actually only recognize a couple of them as bassists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess I did not know that. I, I'm not a big Dio fan. I guess I didn't know that Ronnie James Dio played bass in the band. Um, Maybe he wasn't I, good I, at it. I don't know. I'm assuming he does by the list. Um, so he definitely could. <laughs> I don't know, um, but yeah, they're they're all uh, myself included. Uh, well, I think they all they're all bass players, and a couple of them were heavy metal bass players, myself included. Yeah, I mean, some you could be you know debatable whether or not you know the Who is you know heavy, I wouldn't think anybody would yeah, call yeah, it heavy yeah, metal. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, I know that's why I qualified. But Metallica for sure, and that's of, of the list. Sure. Of the list, he's definitely he was more of an idol. So Motorhead's not. not no, him. no, no. I mean, it's it, like Lemmy's cool, but I just didn't dig him. I hear you. Okay, fair enough. Um, I mean, I, I imagine the record sales speak for themselves between Metallica and Motorhead. So yeah, so, I, yeah I'd say so. Of that too. Um, but I really ask that because we're trying to follow your your biography here. Um, you know, across time. And so you actually go to school originally on a music scholarship. Is that right? At, at Edison? I did. At, at that was my, so my first two years were at Edison Community College. Um, I, I bought a guitar when I was 17 or 18 years old. And um, I was, you know, plucking at the strings in my bedroom and and not doing very well at that. I was, <laughs> I definitely was not going to teach myself how to play. Wow. Um, and at the time, I was hanging out with some folks who were in a band. They were in a band, uh, and they, like many bands in Charlotte County, they rented a storage unit and you know put all the yes. eggshell, the egg cartons on the walls, and um, and I would go hang out with them outside their storage unit. We'd listen to them play, just hang out, and 
uh, probably drink beer, although I don't think I was of age at the time. But mm. uh, yeah, so unfortunate. Yeah. So <laughs> bass players, bass players are not easy to find, and so the band was actually without a bass player. And they asked me after finding out that I had a guitar and I was starting to learn that they offered to sell me a bass and speakers so I could practice with them under a condition though. They and it was the and the condition actually led to me leaving the band. So they made their bed and they slept in it as well. So they they were they were like, Look, you need to take lessons. We you have to get good or at least, you know, be able to keep time and and but you need to do that quickly so you need to take lessons um and so i did and i started taking lessons from this guy named jay hevlin uh, on pine island so i would drive from charlotte county down go out to pine island take lessons with him there and he was a um he was professional musician uh not like you know like a recording artist but Mm -hmm. uh, he made his living playing music on the weekends in the local music scene and giving lessons um, and he played jazz music and he started introducing me to, um, jazz and classical music. Um, and I really took an interest in it. And there's a jazz bassist named John Patitucci, who is, I mean, when I heard him, I was completely blown away hmm. by what he could do with a bass. And, um, so he started introducing me to jazz and classical and I started to get interested in that. And then after only about six months, he said, Hey, why don't you go the the local community college has a pretty good music program and they offer scholarships. And I was like, okay. Um, you know, I was, I was young and dumb. I didn't know better. Right. So I agreed and I went down and I tried out. And again, remember bassists are hard to find. Right. So I go down, and um, I I do my little audition, and they gave me a scholarship, and wow. so I started playing there. And within six months, I started actually making money. And I left that I left the band because I wanted to pursue other music interests. And that's the stand up bass at that point, is that right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Wow. Um, and if I ever picked it back up again, that's what I would do. I would get a stand up bass. Yeah, I mean that's it is pretty cool. So obviously, a classically trained uh, musician goes from a music scholarship uh, to the United States Army. Just how much time did it take them to cut all that hair of yours from your heavy metal days? Or did you, or did you still have your heavy metal hair at this point? Um, no, I did not. So um, that's, at some point I cut it off. I, I did have long hair. I had, um, I don't know. So a, a basis you left off was Jason Newstead who replaced mm, Cliff. Yeah. And uh, at the time, Jason had the sides of his head shaved, basically a mohawk, right? The sides mm-hmm. of his head shaved, top and 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 uh, back long. And I I had that haircut um, <clears throat> when I was playing in the band. Within my first year at Edison, I I cut my hair and got a you know a quote unquote normal haircut. So I, whether it would have been long or short, though, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you you were you were in process too. It doesn't take them long to cut your hair. It does not. No. Yeah, they don't. Um, they don't. Uh... They don't waste a lot of time. So you meet your lovely wife uh, while you're in the army in Germany, correct? Correct. And and so you bring that plus the army college fund, I assume, and the GI Bill uh, back home with you. You said something about studying business. I know you went to law school. Did you start studying business at first? I did. I did. I'm a pretty practical guy. Mm-hmm. I think you know that. We've been friends for a while. Um, and so... 
at some point in the army. My, my wife will tell you she convinced me to, to go to law school, and that may very well be true. Like in you know reconstructing <laughs> it, I probably want to take more credit than I deserve. But um, <clears throat> my wife uh, was a big proponent of me going to law school um, because I'm smart and I like to argue. Like that's <laughs> a very common theme. So, yeah, yeah. You got, if you, yes. Um, and so I knew. I mean, when I went to undergrad, I knew I wanted to go to law school. So undergrad, it was never ever about a, an undergraduate degree. I, I really could not have cared what undergraduate degree. Okay. that I studied. However, I'm practical. And I said, if the if I don't get in, or if law doesn't work out, I want a degree that I think is useful. So I studied finance. That's very practical. I assumed you lost a bet when you said you wanted to go to law school after. But, uh, but yeah. no, I suppose. A lot of folks reach a point when they're pretty young, and they're teenagers and say, hey, I want to be, I want to go be an attorney. But yours was as you're in undergrad? Is that what you're saying? No, it was when I was in the army. When the army, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, when I was in the Army, so the, the undergraduate degree was a means to an end. Okay. Yeah. When you and I met, you were the general counsel at DEP, and you were running the state's lawsuit for the department, correct, for, against Georgia and the U.S. Supreme Court. I believe it's original action 142, if I remember correctly. Uh, I have trouble to this day thinking about this case objectively, but I wanted to have you in. I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. But um, but I'd like, are you willing to discuss Florida's basis for the case, a little bit of kind of level setting for folks that don't know much about it? Yeah, absolutely. I am with you uh, as far as objectivity goes. So full disclaimer, I do not see the case objectively, right? <laughs> like as a lawyer, you're supposed to see both sides. Right. But I was ultimately the state of Florida, you know, through the governor's office, through uh, the secretary, John Severson at the time, is really sort of behind the, 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 the policy, the why for the case, right? I'm, as the general counsel, sort of making sure the trains stay on time, if you will, making sure the yeah. state's getting what it, what it pays for, right? right? Make Testing the lawyers. I mean, these are all brilliant lawyers. Latham Watkins was the law firm representing the state of Florida. You know, so these are all Harvard-educated, mm-hmm. Yale-educated um, lawyers. And so um, I mine was not really the why, but mine was keep it going and, and keep sure. them in line and stuff like that. And that, so that was, that was my responsibility. So I, I never, I never approached the case as the lawyer responsible. Mm-hmm. I was sort of like as a manager of the case. Sure. Sure. And, and maybe because of that, I don't have the same level of objectivity that I could have. Although I will tell you this, I have never ever. And I mean, once tried a case where it went at the time it went to hearing or trial, depending upon whether it was an administrative or civil action, where I wasn't 100% convinced that I was going to beat the tar out of the other side. And it doesn't always work out that way. And it shouldn't, but you, you know, as a lawyer, you have to zealously advocate. And so, right. And so, I mean, well, then allow me then to level set a little bit then on, on the case. Yeah, From, you're going to get it wrong, but go ahead. I am go- I'm almost <laughs> certainly going to get it, get it wrong. I'm going to I'm going to talk to I'm going to talk about it from a strictly narrative sense, which is Florida ha- as well as Georgia has experienced droughts over the years. Uh, some of those droughts have been really bad when you look at uh, 2011, 2012, uh, but there have been worse droughts like in 1954, 1955. You have a 120-mile river that needs to have quantities of water in order to make sure that the salinity doesn't get too high in the Apalachicola Bay. The use 
increasing use of that water in exponential terms in the state of Georgia has caused less of that water to come across the Georgia border into the Apalachicola River in Florida, especially at the time when the time it's needed most, which is during, during a drought or during the dry season, to the point where the days in which there was not enough water, where there was less than, say, 6,000 cubic feet per second of water, making it, even though droughts had been worse, rain days had been fewer in the 50s and in the aughts, yet it was worse somehow to the point where the actual fishery shut down in, uh, in 2012. Yeah. How's that? From an, a non-objective or uh, perspective, <laughs> that's right. Uh, the Supreme Court doesn't see it that way. I know they don't. <laughs> and the, and, and <clears throat> special, the special master, um, Kelly. So the second one, he didn't see it that way either. Um, I think so. special master Lancaster did. Um, but he ultimately found that he couldn't award Florida the relief it was seeking because the United States Army Corps wasn't a party to the lawsuit. And so there's this there's this principle in the law of the failure to join an indispensable party. And that means in order for things to be fair, everybody who's involved in this lawsuit or who should be, sorry, everyone who should be involved in lawsuit needs to be a party to the lawsuit. And if they are not and they cannot be forced to be so and the United States cannot be forced to do so, sovereign immunity, right? Mm-hmm. Then he felt he could not issue a decree that would give Florida more water in the Apalachicola River because the Army Corps controls the flow of water on the Chattahoochee thanks to five reservoirs and five dams, um, two of which are run of the river, three of which are actually engineered and they, right. and they hold back water. Can I go back though? Yeah. Because I, I, and it's been a number of years because this has been a while now, but I have spoken, presented on Florida versus Georgia at, you know, chamber, rotary, not to non-lawyers and people who aren't interested in, in water. Something that they all found it very interesting is, is, is how we got there. And so I'd like to, Tell everybody what an original action is. Yeah. So, <clears throat> um, so Florida in 2013 sued the state of Georgia in what we call an original action. The Supreme Court has original jurisdiction. So that's trial court level jurisdiction to hear cases with ambassadors and others and states. So when a state sues a state, they get to bring that action before the United States Supreme Court. We call it an original action. The reason that that exists in our Constitution, we have to remember, is the states were their own sovereigns at, at one point. right? Mm-hmm. We, and they gave up sovereignty. They gave up aspects of their sovereignty to the federal government. And the federal government recognized that in doing so, the states needed some avenue when they had an issue between the states, right? An issue that, that needs to be resolved because prior to an original action, how they might have resolved that would have been armed conflict. Right. The militias in Georgia and the militias in Florida would have fought. And maybe if we had that today, we would have gotten a different result in Florida versus Georgia. But that is why the original action exists. And that and, is how it got started. And to your point, going back to even before that, it wasn't one day... Uh, Governor Scott wakes up and says, "Hey, let's go sue Georgia." Right. Uh, it, it, I think the, I guess the the closest um, really tipping off point is probably what 1997. You try to come up with a compact between these three states, correct? I, I'm going to go back to 
1990, okay. actually. So Alabama sued the Corps over the Corps' decision to allow more potable water, more consumption out of the Chattahoochee River. And <clears throat> so, you know, you know this, we call it the ACF Basin, right? It's the Sapalachicola, Chattahoochee, and Flint River Basin. For folks not familiar with the Chattahoochee, it's the one that ends up forming the border between. It does. Yeah. Uh, it does. Georgia and, and Alabama. Right. <clears throat> well, and, and so let's, I guess, draw the picture then. So the Chattahoochee starts north of Atlanta, flows in a southwest direction, and then at times forms the border, as you just said, between uh, Georgia and Alabama, and then enters into Lake Seminole, which mm-hmm. sits on the Florida-Georgia line. Right. The Flint River starts south of Atlanta, flows again southwesterly, but through mostly agricultural land to Lake Seminole. The, at that point, at the confluence of those two rivers, Lake Seminole, on the south side of it outflows Apalachicola River. So the waters of that basin, the ACF Basin, are flowing from Georgia down south into Lake Seminole and then down into the Apalachicola River. So that's the ACF Basin. And, and and there have been lawsuits regarding the water and the use of that water and the operation of the Corps' engineered structures on the Chattahoochee dating back to 1990. And so, but moving through that, it, as you say, so if you start in 1990, you start with the Tempted Compact, um, you know, from 97 moving into the very earliest of aughts um, with uh, Governor Bush. It really, I mean, it set a table for a lack of trust between Florida, Alabama, and and Georgia, most specifically Florida and Alabama, and probably some of the other way around. If I'm if I'm being fair, which I won't be. Um, yeah. But but then you get to, as you know, as you say, uh, there's only the last recourse is the original action. So. Talk about how, talk about the structure. So if people don't know how that went down, um, what happens once you, once you decide you're suing another state in the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, so that's a, that's a broad question, sorry. In this case. In this case. <clears throat> so Florida and Georgia are what they call riparian states. Mm-hmm. So the listeners of this podcast probably know that, but when I would talk about this out in the chamber there. And so you have uh, riparian right states, and then out west... And this actually later factors into one of my concerns when they appointed the special master mm-hmm. second time out west. It's prior appropriation, first and right, first and first and sorry, first in time, first and right. Mm-hmm. So because Florida and Georgia are riparian right states, you each get an equitable you get an equitable use of the water that you share. So this basin, we share this basin with Georgia, and so Florida asked for what they call an equitable apportionment of the waters of the ACF basin. Um, and that, and, and the, the allegations were that there was, uh, you know, too much consumption, uh, in the Chattahoochee that, uh, and too much consumption in the Flint river. Um, mm-hmm. and there is, and we talked about this and you had talked about, there were droughts in the fifties. Uh, right. you know, the, that's the very, so, but in between the fifties and, and you know, the 2012, 2013, the, the consumption by Georgia in that Flint basin, Beginning in 1970, it was a, an exhibit. Yep. Um, skyrockets. Yes. I mean, absolutely skyrockets. And Georgia's Georgia's position on its use of the waters in the Flint and Chattahoochee River was that they could practically and politically do whatever they wanted with it, harm to Florida be damned. Now, that is not what he said, but you know, so that's my take on it. 
operatively, that's what that's what's happened. I mean, to the point where one could even say that they did that in cutting off their their own noses as well. In some cases, you look at some of these water bodies and creeks, uh, in the Flint Basin especially, that were literally pumped dry. They went from say a, a few hundred cfs or 150 cfs or even few you know less um, to single digits or zero. Um, what was it? Uh, Spring Creek that was literally yeah. stopped flowing. Uh, right, and I and and you know, and, and and I've tried to sort of refresh my recollection on this <laughs> case, but yeah, I mean, you and I spent weeks, and you spent what five weeks in Portland? It seemed like it. I think it's probably closer to four, three okay. or four. But I spent two weeks, you know, right. so and months living the case, and you know, there was yes. thousands, thousands of pages, and tons of experts that testified. So uh, my memory serves me that <clears throat> um, Georgia basically confessed, like because. Their equivalent of DEP, Department of Environmental Protection, said we're pumping the Flint River dry, right? Ag use is pumping the Flint River dry. As you might expect, farm and agriculture in Georgia, Southwest Georgia, has a, a good bit of political sway. And so it is my belief, I think the team, although it wasn't proven, I think the team probably also believed that it, the Flint River was always going to be a problem because Georgia didn't have the political will. I know they were, they were, and you you can probably speak to this better than I because your testimony was was aimed at the comparison of what we do in Florida for for agricultural right. use as compared to what they do. Right. So I know that they 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 might argue they put some handcuffs on their farmers, but they did not. No, they they didn't, and that was the big. Um, that was really the big dis- difference in, in in my eyes is I know that we have there have been many things related to water use, um, water resources, the environment where we've made our fair you know share of mistakes in Florida, uh, Northwest Florida, and the management of the resources surrounding the Apalachicola River Basin is not one of those mistakes. Uh, the way that the district reserved flow from the river itself, the way that, whether it be the state, federal, or other entities, had preserved huge numbers of acres of this basin to protect it from impacts. The number of, the amount of water used uh, in total, um, I'm trying to remember how a hydrologist explained it to me from the Water Management District, and it was, I believe, uh, Chris Barrio says this to me says the amount of total use by Florida in the ACF basin wouldn't even show up. It's, it's within the margin of error of the instruments used to measure the flow in the river. That's how tiny it is. Right. And you're looking, and, and even with that, and it was 32, we went from 32 million gallons of water a day used total to about 28 million gallons of water a day in, in terms of agriculture so that's a 25 percent decrease in my mind that's what we were looking for was how is it that you can't you don't you don't have to spend a whole bunch of money you don't have to stop farming we didn't ask a single farmer in northwest florida to stop farming what we're asking is to do the same thing that that we would do and that's that's the part that seemed i just couldn't i couldn't wrap my head around it was what you know why we couldn't ask them to do that so um as a lawyer, we are prone to use Latin. Uh, 
think I think we perhaps incorrectly believe it makes us appear smart. Yeah. So there's this principle in the law. It's called res ipsa loquitur, and it and it stands for the thing speaks for itself. I go back to Professor Earhart, Florida State College of Law. Um, who is, in, in, the, in the evidence world, he is the leader in how Florida shapes its evidence code and, and how it, and I mean, the Supreme Court looks to his treatise on evidence. But he taught, uh, also taught torts. And I took uh, first year torts with him. And I forget the you know, case, but we're talking about this case where it's a little flour mill and the person wakes up uh, sort of, you know, surprised covered in flour and there's the remnants of, the, of a flour barrel next to them, right? Mm-hmm. It's clear what happened. The flour barrel <laughs> fell from the second floor, you know, uh, of the warehouse, hit the person, shattered, and left the person covered in flour. They, they have no memory of that. Race ipsa loquitur, the thing speaks for itself. <clears throat> That's what you're getting at, mm-hmm. right? The How can you not conclude that Florida is suffering harm from the reduction of water flow across or through you know, Lake Seminole across the Woodruff Dam when one of the sources of water for the Apalachicola, the Flint River, is literally pumped dry. And so it's sort of the thing speaks for itself. The problem is, is that the Supreme Court right. didn't, you know, they wanted more and um, in an original action such as this, the standard for Florida, and Florida brought the case. So so Florida had the affirmative mm. responsibility to prove its case, which, and the standard here is clear and convincing evidence. That's a high standard. And in the sort of hierarchy of standards of proof in the law, it is the one that is below, beyond a reasonable doubt, right? So the yeah. standard we send people to jail for, this is below that. And so the Supreme Court said, yes, there is this evidence that Georgia has overpumped the Flint. Yes, there is evidence that there was a collapse of the Apalachicola Bay and that that collapse had a dramatic effect on the on the industry, on the oyster industry. But it was Florida's responsibility to prove that it was Georgia that caused that harm. And they point to a couple of things, one of which was after the oil spill, the BP oil spill, Florida allowed what the United States Supreme Court, what the special master, special master Kelly said, mm. what Florida and the way the Supreme Court looked at it, the overharvesting of the Apalachicola, the bay. I mean, they said that to the extent there was harm, that harm was brought on by Florida because they allowed overharvesting of the bay and they didn't, they didn't adequately reshell afterwards. So as you know, in order for there to be harvest, there has to be mm. that the oysters need something to affix to and grow, and they do that in these beds of shell, you know. And so the Supreme Court said they failed to prove that it wasn't those things because Georgia pointed to them. They also said that, um, and beyond that, we do not believe Florida proved that the change in the salinity wasn't from something other than Georgia's consumption, whether it was climactic conditions or things like that. And they pointed to certain certain areas of the bay that even during this drought, even during this higher salinity, still were productive. In fact, product, now, productivity went up. Just to be just to be a pain in the neck. You, all of those things that you just mentioned are true, but all of those things are, in terms of a thing that someone said, but that Someone is Judge Kelly, right? Not Judge Lancaster. Back to how an original action is decided. So 
the Supreme Court, the nine of them, do not sit up there at the bench and take evidence. Mm-hmm. That's not what they do. <laughs> that is not how we want the justices of the United States Supreme Court to spend their time. Five weeks in the bankruptcy court in Portland, yes. Maine, right? <clears throat> so they appoint a special master to oversee the proceedings, to conduct, to allow the parties to conduct discovery, to have a hearing, and then to make a report to the United States Supreme Court. And then the United States Supreme Court will take that report and then the parties will brief on that report why the special master got it right or wrong. Mm. And the Supreme Court will hear that in oral argument like they do for cases that come before them in their appellate jurisdiction. So it is a combination. The things I said are a combination of um, the special special master Kelly, but then the United States Supreme Court. Because once they issue their opinion... Yeah. You know, they're sort of they they adopt his rationale. They found his rationale to be convincing. I just I just found it to be dumbfounding, given that the the person hearing the trial was the special master Lancaster. It goes to oral arguments. The Supreme Court sends it back, says we want to answer this question, and then it's just hey, special master Kelly is going to say I want to talk about all these other things that have were outside the purview of. The instructions I got from the Supreme Court, and they're going to take this new thing and come up with a come up with a decision in in George's favor. It just felt like a kick in the gut in that regard, and it also felt like and you t- maybe that's the more important thing now is and this is again layman. I don't speak Latin. I didn't go to Yale or Harvard, but it sounded like Judge Kelly was essentially writing Georgia blank check on water use from that point on. Is that a fair characterization? No. So, so I, you know, I understand how you, I understand how you get to that. But he doesn't say that Georgia never could um, use so much water that they would be taking uh, uh, more than they're entitled to under, you know, the theory under the under the principles of equity that are embraced by riparian states. Um, he doesn't say that. He says that you had an obligation, Florida, to prove your case. And you didn't. And that's different. And I, I understand why you put it that way, because so this is this is this from the special master's special master Lancaster's report. He says the facts presented at trial demonstrate the gravity of the dispute between Florida and Georgia. As the evidentiary hearing made clear, Florida points to real harm and at the very least likely misuse of resources by Georgia. He said, uh, he goes on to say, there is little question that Florida has suffered harm from decreased flows in the river. And this is what I messed up earlier, but I'll, I'll read the quote from from his report. Because when I read this, I kind of fist pumped, you know. Uh, and he yeah. said, uh, and then I got to the end and I realized he wasn't going to give Florida anything. <laughs> so he said, that's right. He said, uh, that's probably not true. Knowing me, I probably jumped to the conclusion, read it, and then said, oh, how did we get here? Mm-hmm. He said, Georgia's position practically politically and legally can be summarized as follows. Georgia's agricultural water use should be subject to no limitations, regardless of the long-term consequences for the basin. He says it much better than I said it earlier. You know, that those were his findings. So, Brad, I understand why you say Special Master Kelly is cutting uh, Georgia a blank check on its use of water in the, AC, in the ACF basin, but that's, that's not what he says. He says, Florida, you didn't do your job. Well, well, that brings me to 
something else that I wanted to ask you. Because looking back, I mean, hindsight's always crystal clear. I'm not positive that's the case in, when it comes to the Florida v. Georgia. But in the moment, and still to this day, I believe that, and I think you do too, and I think you've already said it, that the Bay and those communities were worth fighting for. Um, but a lot of folks in the middle of that, or when we got, it was remanded back to Special Master Kelly, that this is a giant waste of time. It's a giant waste of money. Um, why are we doing this? Who are these fancy New York, D.C. attorneys? And I know that you you had to answer these questions yourself as you as you described your um, your most important role was case management uh, in terms of all of these attorneys. Would you would you do it the same way again if you had to do it over? You said that the communities are worth fighting for. The communities are worth fighting for, and Florida, Georgia, and Alabama had been fighting over water for a long time. Um, and those lawsuits did not produce, you know, an adequate outcome, an acceptable outcome for the state of Florida. Sure. Uh, you know, and I believe Governor Scott's exact words is that basically Georgia has not been negotiating in good faith. And actually, I believe that our our legal team proved that in in the first, in the hearing and discovery. Right. I mean, they yeah. it was the first time it was the first time anyone was subject to discovery. Right. right? So they, uh, I believe they they did they proved that. So while Georgia is telling Florida one thing, right. on one hand, you know, with regards to negotiations to try and come up with an equitable apportionment or a process for an equitable apportionment, they're on the other hand basically saying, you know, pump as much as you want, pump as much as you want, right? So <clears throat> I, I, I do believe they were worth fighting for, and I thought we were right to do it at the time. And yes, I had some very uncomfortable conversations because it wasn't just anybody. It was a then Speaker of the House. That's right. That was quite upset at the money yes. that Florida was spending on lawyers in the case. The news, the news never caught on to exactly how much Georgia was spending on this lawsuit. And so they were making comparisons between what Georgia and what Florida was spending on the lawsuit. And they were reporting on only one pot of money that Georgia was tapping into. <clears throat> so Georgia was funding this lawsuit from the governor's office and from the AG's office. Mm. And nobody caught on to that. And so there was a point in time where Florida was, I don't know, in the 50s, millions of dollars right. that they had spent on lawyers. And Georgia was closing in on 100. Mm. But because they were only ever reporting on one pot of money... It never got out, and so I didn't. It, I didn't know that. I mean, no, I was, and that's something I've held very close to the vest because, I, for reasons I'm not going to get into, but that they were reporting on hmm. they only one pot of money. Georgia far, far, far outspent the state of Florida on this lawsuit. I don't know that if that would have mattered to the speaker. Mm -hmm. He did not like that we were spending that much money, and. For the people who were questioning it then and the people who will question it now, you know, they will they they could do things like take the population of Apalachicola, you know, divide the money and, and spread it out and say that would have been a better use of those funds. Yeah, I, I think that's I mean, in a way, I think that that that's fair to ask those hypotheticals, but it was ne and I don't think it was for you and it would never was for me. For me, it was this is the wrong thing 
that is happening. Um, in my mind, there, were, there was enough of real and anecdotal evidence to, to show that. And it was, why is a person who tongs oysters in Apalachicola Bay, why is their living that they've made for generations, going back to the 1800s, why is how they earn a living, why is their, their life worth less than anyone else's in that regard? And so, yeah, it's, ex- it's expensive. We do a lot of things, as you, you and I both know, in Florida that are expensive that people could put question. I still think that it's worth it. I understand the question of how much money you're talking about. I'm going to be a little bit more flippant than you were. Why is the livelihood of the men and women in the Apalachicola Bay who go out there and because of regulation hand harvest you know, these oysters, um, why is their livelihood valued less than the ability of someone on Lake Lanier to to navigate their jet ski off of their dock? And, so, and someone, hey, hey, I've said that in conversation, but I, didn't, I expect that uh, that you'd break it out today. So I'm proud of you. Why not? I'm yeah. proud of you. It's true, but it's true, right? I want to hear about what you're up to now. It's like, but let's spend a second. That's what, in terms of the operation of Lake Lanier uh, and the Buford Dam that controls the water coming out. Because there are other, you know, and, and you mentioned them earlier, there are other dams. Uh, some of them are, you know, controlled dams. Some of them are run on the river. Lake Lanier has a lot of water in it. It does. And there's a lot of extra water in it that, that was discussed in terms of when you go into drought operation. That drought operation where they start cutting back quantities seems to coincide coincidentally with the elevation of a lot of people's docks yeah. on Lake Lanier. So uh, Lake Lanier, the core has, when the core, it's, it's not just the Chattahoochee. The core runs sure. a number, you know, sure. they, they run dams all over the country and, and they store water all over the country and they store water according to uh, operating protocols, mm. you know. Um, and in this case, I think Lanier, one of the, one of the um, purposes of the Lanier water is consumption, but another is recreation too, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh, so, you know. That was part of it. The re- recreation being one of the one of the the statutory allowances on on the lake outweighs tupelo trees. It outweighs uh, inver- you know invertebrates and mollusks all, all, along the river, and it outweighs human beings that are just trying to to make a living down there. I hear you, but, but so let's go back to did Special Master yes. uh, Perry write a blank check? No, because he doesn't say that. Right, he doesn't say that Florida. You could ultimately prove that those things that they 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 matter, and they they are entitled to water, um, and he just said you didn't you didn't convince me that Georgia yeah. was the cause of it. You know. So you so let's move past DEP. <laughs> All right. Because <laughs> you've been, when when did you leave the department? What year was I can't remember. Twenty seventeen. So twenty seventeen. Correct. So we're going on six years outside. Uh, you're working now for very well-known, well-respected environmental practice. Uh, tell me about the day in the life of an environmental attorney on the outside now. I assume it's much like a, a Grisham novel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, with a little bit of law and order thrown in there sure. with a little bit of a few good men right. and Aaron Brockovich, too. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Um, the practice of law is nothing like what you see in TV. 
It's nothing like what you see on TV, unless you watch actual documentaries on, you know, like criminal prosecution or right. something like that. Um, it is a, uh, a a good bit of time uh, reading, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even at where, even now in my position, I, I spend a lot of time reading. Um, it is a good bit of time uh, strategizing, right? Thinking about a problem, thinking it through, coming up with uh, a solution to the problem. Um, and if you're in litigation, then there are rules that we play by in litigation. And so you're, you know, you have to um, adhere by those rules. Um, it is a good bit of time meeting, just like everyone else. Everybody. Um, and then the fun stuff, hmm. the things that, you know, you actually see on TV, the, you know, the oral arguments in court and the the uh, the depositions and the trials at least with what i do um that's that's a smaller person a significantly smaller percentage of your time yeah. than the other thing what's up for the for those studying up for their lsats right now um what percentage is that of your total uh, of your total work the, the super exciting part i think you like you like the the understanding you like the the research and and the knowing and the finding out it's yeah. like but it's not you know so i do cases that are measured in days but i do cases that are measured in weeks mm. too and so i could in a year when you look at depositions and hearings and all that i could spend one to two months worth of time uh doing those things you know, doing depositions, doing final hearings, and things like that. Um, that could be one or two final hearings because they're each two weeks long, mm-hmm. or one of them is three weeks and one of them is one week, or one of them is four weeks and one of them one of them's a day. You know, because I've the number of times that you know the number of, and I'll just call them all trials, right? In, in the administrative world, it's called a final hearing. In circuit court, it's called a trial. But I'm just gonna call them all trials because the truth is they look and feel very similar. There are just there are certainly differences but they look and feel the same i might end up doing one or two trials a year but because of the um the nature of my practice i could spend three weeks in in court doing that whereas a um a public defender might go to court um 17 times but 12 of them were half day trials or Mm -hmm. one day trials or you know and so the the time that they're going to court is less than mine but they get to say, I had 17 trials this right, year. Right, right. You know. What accomplishment are you most proud of? That could be professionally, personally, whatever you want to, however you want to frame it. If you want to do one of each, that's cool too. Well, you know, it, it would have to be, the, personally, it would have to be raising my boys mm-hmm. with my wife. Um, you know, our oldest was in foster care. Mm-hmm. So our oldest um, had a really hard life. Before he joined us, uh, he was in third grade. He'd been left behind. Hopefully, he'll never hear this because he'd be like, "Dad, why, why are you yeah. putting all my business <laughs> out there?" I think you're safe there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> um, so he uh, had a really, really hard life before he joined us. Um, he joined us when he was in third grade. Like I said, he'd been left behind and he couldn't read, could not read. And when my wife and I went to pick him up, when we finally got. Um, we went through the process of adopting him out of the system. And by the way, the state does not make that easy. <laughs> and I get it, but also shame on them. Um, is it easier now? I don't know, because this is 15 years ago. Right. Us, so 
we went and picked him up and he was in a class with young boys and girls who had severe physical and mental disabilities. They were challenged, all of them. And that's not our son. That's mm-hmm. not our son, but the system had given up on him. Mm-hmm. So um, he joined us in third grade, uh, failed the, um, what's the aptitude test they give the kids in school? I forget now. I think it's the FCAT. Fails the FCAT in, a third, in third grade. In your third and 10th grade years, if you fail the FCAT, you get left behind. Right? Right. So they were going to leave him behind. and They were to fail him. He would have then have been fail. He would have been now two years behind. So our our oldest is is African American, um, and the statistics on him dropping out of school goes through the roof with mm-hmm. that second failure. Yeah, right. The statistics for him potentially going to jail climb dramatically yeah. if they fail him. So my wife and I fought tooth and nail with the state with the board with the with the school board to get them to socially promote him. It's permissible for them to say, okay, there are other reasons why we're not gonna hold this child back. And we were and I do not I'm not one of those lawyers who walks around, I'm a lawyer. Look at me. I'm a lawyer. I'll see I it was the it was perhaps the one and only time in my personal life where I right. said, you need to understand what I do. I am going to bring a law I'm gonna sue you because I can't let this happen to mm-hmm. my son. We get close to the point where we're about to sue and we get a decision that they're going to socially promote him. Mm. Uh, We told them during this process, if you do this, when he leaves this elementary school, he will be on grade level and this child will succeed. And when he left elementary school, he was on grade level. He still needed remedial help, but he was on grade level. Mm. And over the next several years, still a lot of time, patience and love. He graduates high school and he is in the United States Navy now. So that, you know, that and then my youngest too, um, you know, raising him now, he of course did not have to, he had a, a very, um, a, you know, he, he was, uh, had a very, very good upbringing. He never was exposed to those things, but you know, raising kids, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, yeah. they could turn out. You know, in ways you would wish they wouldn't. And he is about to, he did three years in college, but he decided he wanted to study um, aviation maintenance. And he and I are going to Mobile this Saturday for him to take <laughs> one part of his exam so he can get his license to fix nice. airplanes. Nice. So that's definitely, so those, I mean, that, and that trumps anything I've done professionally, quite candidly. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, but speaking of uh, water and the environment, are you optimistic about the future of the environment in Florida? I, I am. I am. Um, I, but not because of you or your or or or, or Brian Armstrong <laughs> or but uh, because of the people yeah. of the state of Florida. Right. So the people of the state of Florida, um, they they get it. Right. Mm-hmm. They get it. And when the agencies or the politicians get it wrong, the people get it right. And, um, and so I'll give you, so one of the positions I held at DEP was director of the water division, mm-hmm. division of water resource management. So in that capacity, I go to, I go to Atlanta to take part in the region four 
water directors meeting. Tom Frick and I go because the state of Florida is the only state that has a deer division, the Division of Environmental Assessment Restoration, and then a water division. Everywhere else, they have their NPDES and their standard setting group under one person. So Florida, right there, thinks it's important enough to have two. Tom gives a presentation on numeric nutrient criteria, mm-hmm. our successes and, and opportunities in the numeric nutrient criteria. One of the directors from, and now you have to keep in mind, Region 4 is, I hope I get this right because I'm going by memory, Tennessee, Kentucky, North South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida. Don't worry, everyone. We'll post uh, Fred's email address in the episode notes. Um, make sure you reach out to him if you miss something. Yeah, so if I, I mess that up. So one of the directors, I don't recall from which state, leans over to me during Tom's presentation and he says, how did you have the political will to pull this off? We could never have done anything like this in our state, whatever state that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's because of the people. So... I am optimistic because uh, the oystermen in Apalachicola make their living living on the water. Right? They got shafted by the by mm-hmm. the decision, but they make their living. The you know fishermen. Um, I did a case a couple of years ago. We represented uh, fishing guides mm-hmm. make their living on the water. So many people, so many people in the state depend on our natural resources. That I'm optimistic for our future because of them. Right, because of them, and and I don't mean to. I, I think Brian and all the and Sean <laughs> at the DEP and Brian, but let's give credit where credit's due. It's the people of the state of Florida. What keeps you up at night? So you're familiar with PFAS? Yeah. Okay. So that that should keep me up at night. It should keep you up at night. Yeah. Quite honestly, but it, it 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 doesn't. What keeps me up at night is the next forever chemical. Mm. At some point, I'm concerned that. For our convenience, because we don't want the packaging of the you know, our microwave dinner or sure. our pizza box to stick, that a, a, you know someone is going to manufacture, and it, it may not be in the United States; it might be overseas. A chemical that I mean, you think about it, PFAS. You know, the idea that you can mm-hmm. cook and it wouldn't stick to a pan was brilliant at the time. And they put it in everything because that was brilliant at the time, and now. You can't find rainwater without PFAS in it. Hmm. Like you, and, and in order to compare blood samples, you have to go back to like the Korean War because you and I have PFAS in us right now. And that's, quite honestly, that's scary. But it's not that. It's what's, what's the next one? Isn't, I mean, not, I mean, not to, I wouldn't call it pushing back. I would just say uh, scientists that I've worked with would say the poisons in the dose um, and that includes, you know, the salt that we put, you know, on our, on our food, uh, of course. Aren't we getting better at that, at that sort of thing? As time goes on, you know, you learn about uh, the impacts of, of certain pesticides and, and other things over, over time. And, and the choice was, hey, we can, we can help put out uh, fires on, you know, planes that, you know, crash with, you know, these chemicals. And it seems great at the time, um, but maybe not so much. It seems... Like that's less less likely. Those those things get uh, fewer in number as the years go on. Do you think or but, or but, no? Okay, so who's the we? You said aren't we getting better at this? Who's the we? The uh, United States of America, state of Florida, you know the EPA. Uh, and, and how many manufactured goods are we buying that come from overseas? 
Ask me rhetorical questions. <laughs> so my point is, yes, I understand. In the United States, there's standards, and uh, you know, there's government agencies that are supposed to. But but what about the production of goods in China, or India, or some other place, right? That is right. producing a lot of what we consume. So, you know, maybe you're right, but and I, I hope you are. But I'm, but, I'm trying, I have no idea. What I'm trying to do is, is like be optimistic and also recognize the things that, that we have caught in the past that it takes, like the, if you remember the, the Chinese manufactured drywall, that was a giant disaster and toxic and um, poorly made. But don't those things, you know, and I, I don't think either one of us know. It's like, but it seems like as you, you're always fighting the last war, but the last war, you know, maybe avoid something similar in the future when you look at maybe. How, you, how you control, you know, the import of things that are coming in the country and, you know, and, and what, what that's, you know, what's in there. Maybe, maybe. The question is what keeps you up at night though, right? It was. And so you're sort of, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the uh, monster under the bed. Yeah. Right. And, and. That's fair. And as we grow up, we find out there is no monster under the bed. So maybe you're right. I don't know who, that. Who I knows? still won't what's... look. <laughs> <laughs> so the so I think the the question is still is you know what's the next thing we're going to learn about and and how does that affect us? Yeah, that's a, I think that's a fair fair thing to be concerned about for sure. How can folks reach you if they want to know more about what you're up to or if they need uh, a good environmental attorney? So I am um, with law firm Lewis Longman and Walker. My uh, I think you you said you'd post the mm, email address, so you can find it in the notes on the on the uh, podcast, um, and reach me uh, at my office number two. Uh, I assume you'll put that there, so you can call me, you can email me, and you can message me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn all the time. I can vouch for that, Fred Ashour. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. I really do. Hey, I do want to. Uh, so, you said that I listened to Brian's. Brian's podcast and you said at the end of it and join me for my next conversation with another person directing Florida water policy or something to that hang on it's in, it's in the script I'll re- hang on we'll get to it anyway so I at the point at that point in time I thought that was going to be me and I'm like I don't <laughs> I, I don't know what he's talking about <laughs> but now I understand that you talked to Julie so I get it I there get you it go. there you go <laughs> well then then uh, hold on your horses because I'm going to do it right now thanks again to Fred Ashour for joining me on the podcast you've been listening to Water for Fighting you can reach me at flwaterpod at gmail.com or on Twitter and Instagram at FLWaterPod with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Sorn for making the best of what he had to work with and to David Barfield for the amazing graphics as well as the technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for the podcast. The song's called Doing Work for Free and you should check the band out live or wherever the best music is sold. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. Join me next time for another conversation with someone who has helped shape water policy in the Sunshine State. Until then... Keep your whiskey close and your water closer. Mm